0: Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delber Rohacz and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague,
1: Julia Zorza with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University and Giselle Donnelly, I'm also a senior fellow at AEI.
0: On our podcast, we talk about The challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Mason Clark, a senior analyst at the Institute for the Study of War and a lead uh, on the Russia project. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mason, I want to just turn. To you, um, since there have been many different developments in, in, in Russia's war against Ukraine in the past couple of days, even ours, we heard uh, President Zelensky's impassioned speech to Congress. President Biden announced today uh, additional lethal aid to Ukraine. Uh, there are some noises from the sort of diplomatic front where, where, where Lavrov said that there might be a compromise within REACH, a 15-point plan for neutralizing Ukraine. Uh, but I suppose we should leverage your expertise as, as the analyst of, of, of military matters in, 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 in this conflict and get an update from you on what the developments are you know, around Kiev, around Mariupol and in the other areas where fighting is ongoing and where really the atroc- atrocities against the civilian population seem to be reaching new heights.
2: Sure. It's my pleasure to be back on the show. Thanks for having me again. So overall, uh, Ukrainian forces continue to be in a very good position and are not just holding Russian forces back around Kiev and in northeastern Ukraine, but also retain the ability to launch localized counterattacks, which is certainly not something that we would have obsessed. Uh, They'd be doing three weeks into the war uh, before this started on February 24th. Russian forces have taken a number of operational pauses uh, in their effort to encircle Kyiv over the last week and a half or so because they quite simply don't have the combat power to complete that in a large scale operation in the last. Two or three days, they've resumed very localized attacks, um, predominantly focused on a town called Irpin, trying to cross the river, as well as a few locations close to the Dnipro River. But all of the assaults that we've been seeing have been very small company battalion level. So only a few hundred Russian forces uh, operating at once. Nothing like the higher brigade and regiment level assaults that they would likely need in order to break through Ukrainian defenses. They're also continuing to suffer pretty high casualties, launching very unsupported assaults. Um, And particularly amongst general officers, the Russian general casualties just continue to mount, which show their continuing command and control issues that these very senior personnel have to deploy so close to the front line that Ukrainian forces can target them. There's been very little movement as well at northeast of Kyiv uh, and the very long line of communication the Russians have got for themselves stretching between Chernihiv and Sumy and over towards Kharkiv. We've seen a number of Ukrainian counterattacks and even reports over the weekend that Russian forces advancing towards northeastern Kyiv uh, were actually pulled back to defend against those Ukrainian counterattacks. So again, the mobility of the Ukrainian military three weeks into the war has been truly great to see. We also can't fully confirm from the open sources that we're using, but it seems highly likely that Ukrainian territorial defense forces are really starting to take a toll on Russian supply convoys, particularly in this northeastern Ukraine area. Although, of course, precise information on those is a little bit spotty. Um, the Russians are continuing, of course, to heavily bombard key cities, including Karykyev, uh Chernihiv itself, and the outskirts of Kiev, the capital, and some very limited operations uh southeast of Kharkiv, but again, no major changes. It's been a much quieter week uh, in terms of mobile actions than we would have anticipated as the Russians continue to be able to or continue to face these same difficulties. Now, unfortunately, as you sort of go clockwise around the country into Donbass and then into Mariupol, the situation is not as good for the Ukrainians. Russian forces are making slow but steady progress to claim the entirety of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, We think they've got around 70 percent of those territories now, um, and they likely seek to capture those entire territorial regions, uh, not just the areas occupied by their proxies before the war. And they are grinding down uh, Ukrainian forces on the line of contact that were previously heavily fortified. Now, Mariupol, the key city on the Sea of Azov, is cut off, and Russian forces in particular are continuing to take towns north and west of the city to sort of increase the depth of their envelopment and prevent the defenders inside from either breaking out or ukrainian forces uh in the center of the country from trying to relieve them it's a little dicey uh again in terms of knowing exactly what towns around mariopol have been captured but we are getting reports from inside the city of daily russian assaults by both proxy forces and russia's eighth combined arms army which has been one of the most effective units of the war so far um, and reports of supplies and possibly water starting to run low i'm not confident enough in giving a hard and fast forecast of when i think the russians will be able to grind down Mariupol. i don't have a good sense of just how much the ukrainians have fortified the city and stockpiled supplies but it is likely i would say within the next few weeks to maybe a month a month or two at the most to fall, and that likely with the Russian stall around Kiev and the failure of their overarching goal of forcing the city to capitulate will be the next big inflection uh, in the war in Ukraine. Finally, very limited Russian drives around Kherson coming out of Crimea, but even then those forces have uh, not come up, uh, not had the supplies necessary to conduct major drives similar to forces in the north. We are still watching, of course, whether or not the Russians could do an amphibious landing, and a lot of satellite imagery on March 15th of Russian warships off the coast of Odessa got a lot of attention. Um, And unfortunately, Russian naval infantry, which is their equivalent of Marines, do still have the capability to launch an amphibious landing and maybe threatening to do so. However, we think it's really unlikely that they would launch an unsupported amphibious assault on Odessa. That would just be Asking for disaster, although the Russian general staff has certainly made similar stupid decisions so far in this war, so we can't rule it out. But likely, they're going to try and extend their ground push uh, further west before committing those forces. But they are still there as a you know quite literal floating reserve.
1: If I can follow up on on uh, on the naval part, um, we've seen over the last few days um, from social media and beyond. Uh, really a dire situation in which, um, sure on the on the land side they haven't gotten to Odessa, but on the on the naval side um, we see. Um, the amalgamation, the whole set of um, of Russian boats um, uh, off the coast. Now, um, people in Odessa are telling me we're not really that worried because we've mined everything we can on the beaches and in the shallow waters. Um, but but that doesn't mean that the Russians are not um, going to try um, also symbolically to get the jewel of the Black Sea, Odessa, and uh, and so what do you, how, how do you look at this in terms of risks in, in the next um, couple of weeks, say, um, if they don't manage to do that by land, do they have a chance um, to do it just um, through an amphibious attack? And then a follow-up question to that as broad as it is we've also seen um uh, ukrainian analysts warning seriously that if the Russians manage to take Odessa, it's very likely that um, they will make a move on Moldova, um, cutting off Mo- um, Odessa and um, and leaving and moving into Moldova, which is a lot more vulnerable with basically no army um, and a very dire um, economic and refugee situation. So can you tell us a little bit more in terms of the short-term risks that the Russians are willing to take around Odessa and, um, and what that means? strategically for the medium term?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I do think, fortunately, short term, there's not a high chance of the Russians being able to capture Odessa. They have been stalled around Mykolaiv, which is sort of the last major city east of Odessa for about really coming on two weeks now um, without many major advances. And even some several more unsupported uh, airborne operations have not been able to sort of crack that nut of Ukrainian defenders in the city. As you note, yeah, Russian forces do unfortunately have naval superiority in the Black Sea. The Ukrainian Navy has not been active for some time, and Russian warships are supporting through, uh, you know, fire against surface targets, uh, Russian operations on the ground, um, and likely could definitely help get those forces moving again. But as right, as you also rightly noted, the Ukrainians have for several years prioritized defending, uh, both Odessa and Mariupol against an amphibious assault, uh, by Russian forces. I mean, years before this, uh, new Russian invasion began, that was something that the Ukrainian military was worried about. And that's likely why the Russians didn't use these amphibious forces against Mariupol is that they have heavily defended that area as well. Um, and I think very much they would be held back to be used, uh, once they were ground forces. So again, I think in the near term, what really is going to be the most important here is when uh, or if, but I think unfortunately, when Russian forces are able to take Mariupol, because those Ukrainian defenders are tying up a lot of Russian forces and a lot of artillery and supplies, most importantly. Um, And as I discuss a bit later, the Russians are very much struggling to replace combat losses and logistics. Simply being able to reallocate the forces they already have in theater will be very important. It will definitely I do I do worry that as Mariupol falls and these Russian forces redeploy affect sort of the overall status of and framing of the war, both internationally and in Ukraine, because uh, the government in Kiev has so and rightly built up this rhetoric of they are fully pushing back on the Russians. There haven't been any major losses. And I worry how that might be harmed by uh, the city possibly falling. Odessa, along that same line, it would be much worse. And as you note, would threaten Moldova as well. Uh, Russian troops that are in the illegally occupied territory of Transnistria haven't been very active, and they are very, very low readiness troops, even beyond what we've seen by mainline Russian forces. But I agree that it could uh, Russia, if Russia does take Odessa, they would likely threaten uh, Moldova. Um, and unfortunately, we can't roll out this being this conflict expanding further into Moldova or similarly in Belarus, if Russia does finally get Belarus to enter the war, which I don't think is too likely in the near term, whether or not that could bring in Poland and other knock-on effects like that, um, that we'll be watching as this goes into the summer, because this war is going to protract, most likely.
3: All right. Uh, if we, can, <laughs> if, like, if you would indulge me in a couple of uh, geeky tactical level questions, sure. uh, I'd appreciate it. a couple of things. One, the if you could describe in a little more detail the nature of the Ukrainian counterattacks around Kiev, are these actual sort of ground taking counterattacks, or are they more like sort of large raids? Um, or, or does it involve armored forces, or is it just guys riding in cars and then you know walking the last couple of miles or kilometers to? the engagement so you know what's the nature of that <clears throat> secondly uh there's been a lot of reporters uh on the ground in kiev who have said that the southern corridor out of the city is nowhere near being closed off that even reporters are driving in and out of the city on a on a regular basis which must mean that military supplies are likewise uh, uh getting in well-
0: Three EU prime ministers just yeah yeah by, <laughs> yesterday. Well,
3: they're, by train they're, they're, they're expendable, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and I I guess sorry a couple more bits, um, you know you describe sort of penny packet attacks by the Russians, which has been an ongoing, you know, shortcoming that they've suffered from. So you got to wonder whether. Even the Russian forces are really organized for, um, you know, brigade or above. I mean, they have echelons and stuff like that, but how much stuff these people actually have to bring to bear or are able to coordinate. You know, these battalion tactical groups are pretty brittle formations when you look at them. So, you know, we keep expecting the Russian hammer to drop, but it doesn't. So I'll I'll I, I could go on at infinitum, but I'll 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 stop with those three if uh, uh, until it's my turn again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So yeah, the the Ukrainian counterattacks around Kyiv are actually still localized armored forces. Now it's mostly infantry and APCs, armored personnel carriers, um, but there is still some Ukrainian armor and. It's certainly not, you know, operational swings and territory being taken and lost, but they are actually reclaiming suburbs and outlying neighborhoods of Kiev for Russian forces and then holding them for a day or even uh, longer, particularly around Yerpin uh, and Bucha have been the two towns that have sort of been swinging back and forth. Um, and it has very much been, you know, still, I mean, very localized within the scale of a couple miles back and forth, mobile fighting there, but the Russians just have not been able to uh, amass the power that they need. And seemingly, the you know, it's fine for the Ukrainians, so to speak, to only launch company and battalion level counterattacks. That's all they need. That's not cutting it for the Russians. And so both sides are sort of doing that back and forth. And the front line has been quite stable northwest of Kiev for some time. Um, Yeah, as you rightly noted, there's still a quite open route into Kiev that is allowing uh, the city to sustain itself, continue to develop uh, fortifications, supplies, that sort of thing. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, just yesterday, March 15th, uh, Zelensky did some reappointments in the Ukrainian military. He reappointed the yeah. current juma- uh, commander of the joint forces uh, and appointed him as the director of the Kyiv Regional Military Administration, which is a new structure that he's just created um, and appointed someone new uh, as commander of the joint forces, which is the Ukrainian forces around uh, Donbas. So likely continuing to sort of consolidate that effort uh on the ukrainian side and make sure to prevent the russians from completing that encirclement
3: yeah that's been sort of spun as as uh the ukrainians putting their best guy at the critical spot would you agree exactly that? Yeah.
2: exactly yeah that's definitely what i track and he's been very active so far in the war pavlyuk is his name uh as sort of a public face and rallying the troops visiting forces on the front line um and he is quite experienced in the ukrainian military um And sort of on the final item of the continued Russian difficulties, I mean, again, I've never been happier to have been wrong in my life, but we really thought that the Russian military is gonna do better than this. Um, And uh, very glad that they're having these difficulties. Uh, But it does seem that likely what it is, is sort of as you noted with the battalion tactical groups that are these small sort of brittle formations that are pulled from the best personnel of a larger brigade and regiment, Sure, you can get a single battalion tactical group of 800 to 900 guys to work together. But when, as the Russians have done, you're pulling one or two PT, BTGs from every regiment across Siberia and the Pacific coast and then expecting them to coordinate together, it, they're not really functioning together um, and not able to coordinate uh, these larger scale attacks. Although really, I think at this point in the war, we assess that it's Less a Russian command issue and more a logistics and supply issue, because from what everything we have seen, the Russians expected this war to have been over two weeks ago and even that at the outside of they thought they would capture Kiev in four days. So it's highly likely that they have quite simply burned through the stocks of ammunition and food, even as we saw with them asking China for MREs meal ready to eats, was the most recent report we got. They're having to rush forward supplies that they didn't have in place, not expecting it to go on this
3: long. When they start asking for extra Tabasco, you know, they're really in trouble.
2: (laughs) Right, right.
0: Well, so if I may just encourage you to speculate a little bit, Um, we uh, heard President Biden today announce additional 800 million in assistance, including Stinger anti-aircraft systems, Javelin missiles. Also some helmets. And so this goes (laughs) on top of a previous package, which was announced yesterday. Um, And and So so I suppose I would like you to sort of step back and and, and take a look at the sort of lethal aid that is being sent to Ukraine. Never mind the MiGs and the debate about MiGs. But I wonder to what extent uh, there is a sort of one-to-one matching between what Ukrainians need. And what they are being provided with by the U.S. government, and by other Western partners, if you if you're if you're sort of following following the, the other aid flows that are that are coming into Ukraine, and, and also you know like what what other sort of systems, whether for defending Ukrainians against uh, Russian artillery or, or, or other form of anti-aircraft systems, would be would be useful at this stage if you were to design a sort of optimal aid package for for ukrainians
2: sure sure so it's a little bit of a two-part question i'll actually i'll start with sort of the lower end of it and the 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 much maligned helmets is actually sort of emblematic of i think something that is going to be really important uh, as the war continues to go on is this sort of sustained lower level supplies of you know basic necessities of the ukrainian military of i mean it's quite similar to the russians of food and ammunition and body armor and helmets and basic radios and items like that that the ukrainians are of course also burning through at a quite rapid rate of you know before this the ukrainian military was very much postured on defending against the donetsk and Luhansk people's republics and not you know fighting this overall nationwide war so they very much need that as well And one thing that I, you know, it's been great to see Zelensky's speech to Congress and all the Western aid, what I would almost warn is, I, I mean, I wish this wasn't a problem, but there's a real risk that as the Ukrainians continue to fight the Russians to a standstill, that this sort of drops off the radar of the West. And all of these aid shipments are great right now. They're going to need to sustain into April and May and June and likely onwards as Ukrainian forces continue to fight. So that's almost what I would flag as, you know, the great one off payments are amazing and definitely essential for the Ukrainian forces. But making sure that that's sustained over time is going to be really important.
1: And I think now, even now, um, I think yesterday or two days ago, President Zelensky said what you guys the West are sending us in one week is sufficient for 20 hours. So does that make sense in terms of flow what you're seeing that we already have major problems with the flow and this could get worse?
2: Yeah, unfortunately so. Um, Obviously, you know, the Ukrainian military is not reporting out on those issues, but we have seen some scattered reporting that they are having similar supply issues, though, of course, they don't have to launch large offensive operations, so they don't have near the fuel and ammunition requirements that the Russians are, Um, and they've had to sort of shuttle uh, supplies and forces around different areas. But they are likely you know, facing similar uh, shortages, uh, though, thankfully, again, considering they've been able to keep their air force active, that's prevented the Russians from sort of with impunity destroying uh, Ukrainian co- uh, supply convoys and reserves further in the west of the country, which very related to that on the question of sort of specific capabilities that Ukraine could likely use from the west. Um, there's, of course, been a lot of attention given to Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger Uh, anti-air missiles, but those are single sort of man-fired capabilities. Likely what Ukraine needs even more as it goes on is larger scale air defenses, such as um, they they use the the Russian S-300 air defense system and could likely get that from some NATO allies, as well as other sort of high-end capabilities like electronic warfare uh, and command and control support elements um, and ways to keep the Ukrainian air force running, even beyond, of course, you know, the the, the MiGs and direct Russian, or pardon me, uh, sort of NATO support for the Ukrainian Air Force, but sort of the support behind that of uh, airborne warning and control aircraft and that sort of thing. The sort of higher end capabilities that Ukraine either doesn't have entirely or has in very small numbers that likely will be very very important um that of course will be a bigger ask in a longer time horizon because you know it's much easier to quickly approve and ship these lower level systems and even up to stingers and uh javelins but these larger equipment is going to require more time to deploy and particularly this is going to be the main challenge is ensuring that it's equipment that ukrainian forces already trained on and can Mm -hmm. use I, I mean, for you know, just to pull something off the top of my head, of like the the U.S. Patriot missile defense system, you can't just easily deploy that because you need Ukrainian forces trained and able to operate those. Oh,
0: so systems. On the, if I may, Biden's announcement included a mention of hundred drones.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's I don't know what, what, wanted what to ask drones about.
0: those are. If they are the Turkish ones, the same as Ukrainians are using, then it's easy. But if it's if it's a different kind of drone, I imagine like these are not. Gadgets you just get that, like, fly around like, you know, little drones that are used, you know, by Amazon (laughs) to deliver packages. Uh, So this would require a fairly sort of sophisticated operation to sort of bring Ukrainian systems up to speed, no?
3: Well, actually, I bet that there's a kind of window. I mean, we have hundreds of leftover, you know, low altitude Reapers and stuff like that from the Middle East war years, um, there's also a giant body of Americans and other Westerners who know how to operate and sustain these people who could be hired as contractors. Uh, you know, And and I'm sure that the, that the Ukrainians could try you know, they've been doing a pretty great job with the Turkish drones. And I don't know. I mean, they got those very recently. So they've digested that and and they're doing a great job with drone operations. I, I, I mean, I'll ask Mason, but this seems like a real area where we could begin to provide or can sustain the provision of a capability that, that the Ukrainians could really, really use um, and that, that w- would avoid a lot of the complex issues that go with the MiGs or you know, instituting a no-fly zone or et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that that's that is my theory of the last twenty-four hours. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't. So I don't have a good sense, and I'm certainly not an expert on you know how interoperable the Turkish TB2 drones can be with U.S. provided stuff. I do know that the Ukrainian military does already use a lot of Western drones that are on the smaller scale, of sort of uh, you know hand-launched drones for much more tactical reconnaissance, <laughs> not. Uh, not the armed drones, the way those, as far as I know, the only armed drones the Ukrainian military has is the Turkish TV 2 But there likely would be some, you know, sort of cross-pollination there and ability to use, uh, depending on what exact US systems were sent over pretty quickly. But yeah, I would agree that it's definitely something of that sort of uh, aid and particularly training and uh, possibly Western forces serving as contractors and support could definitely turn the tide so to speak, although I would, of course, it will affect, you know, Putin's risk calculus. And he has clearly demonstrated and stated uh, on Saturday, I believe, uh, the deputy foreign minister Ryabakov stated very clearly that we will treat uh, Western military aid convoys as legitimate targets. And then the next day they struck, there weren't any Westerners there at the time, um, but they struck the main base in Western Ukraine that NATO and U.S. forces have previously done uh, training missions at. So that will definitely be tricky. And I can... I from what I'm seeing from the Biden administration, likely will be something they'll be not too keen on doing of putting those forces in in harm's way, but it definitely could help support those Ukrainian capabilities.
1: If I can follow up on that, this is the thing that concerns me most. Um, Based on that attack and some reports um, on um, on Lviv, um, if we are looking at uh, uh, some... In bad terms, miracle of uh, of a Russian significant offensive in the next few weeks. How vulnerable is um, is the West? Because from a refugee and um, IDP perspective, particularly IDP internally displaced persons, um, from from that perspective. Um, uh western ukraine is essential vital um, for them um, surviving Um, how exposed based on what they have now committed already the russians into ukraine and what is still at the border um, and what they can bring in in the next few weeks which i'm guessing is not a lot how do you assess uh, assess the risk of um, western ukraine particularly big centers such as Lviv to be significantly struck um, and suffer losses as we've seen in the East?
2: Fortunately, I think it's a pretty low possibility. A lot of the Russian forces are you know, already committed and they likely don't have too many reserves available that could uh, be a additional force to open yet another axis of advance other than the ones they already have that are unsupported the, with
3: supplies. The Belarusian military is poised and ready to go.
2: Well so that's actually a very funny thing is I think that Putin wishes it was. He really is trying to pressure Lukashenko into it. But Lukashenko in his very sort of wily ways is I think trying to very much sort of push off to preserve his military in his own country. Being drawn into the war. He had a fascinating speech a few days ago where he claimed that any false flag attacks in Belarus were Western mercenaries and Belarus shouldn't fall for them and shouldn't enter the war. So this seems to be a very direct, you know, because we got actual Russian false flags attacks on Belarus last week right. of yep. Russian aircraft entering Ukrainian airspace and then bombing Belarus. Lukashenko is directly saying, no, 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 we won't fall for these. We must defend the, the Western front against Poland and Lithuania. Um, and that's been interesting to watch. But even then, I mean, you, Belarus has about six active combat brigades, three airborne and three motorized and I mean, if this is, to be honest, this is what the Russian forces are capable of. I'm sure the Belarusian forces would not be able to support much more based on what we're seeing. So thankfully, I don't think that uh, there's a real risk to a ground attack into Western Ukraine in the near future, though, of course, Russian forces do continue to occasionally target it um, with standoff munitions, cruise missiles, that sort of thing from Belarusian airspace. Though they, of course, have very limited stores of those weapons and can't, you know, use them in every situation they would like to.
3: Before we before we let you go, uh, uh, again, uh, one little nitty-bitty thing for me about um, what might happen after the fall of Mariupol. Um, and especially whether the Russians would really be easily able to redeploy much... Uh, away from there first of all you know even if they you know what are they going to do with the city after it falls Uh, and and secondly if they were to try to redeploy you know it seems like a that would be hugely risky and it would just take a long time for those forces to pop up someplace else and where what would you do
0: with them Exactly. I was wondering what you meant by this idea of an inflection point. Like, so how would that sort of change I the think dynamics you were speaking in the speaking Politically, well?
3: right, more than uh, you know, tactically or operationally.
2: Actually, so thank you for following up. I I meant both. I don't think those forces would pivot all the way back up to Kiev. What it would do, however, is free Russian forces up to support the attacks towards Odessa and then directly north from Crimea towards uh, Zaporizhia. And I think those are essentially the two options they would have of uh, the Russian Eighth Combined Arms Army could, after taking Mariupol, likely a lot of rear uh, air, uh, sort of area forces like Rosgardia would do the occupation of the city and they could either pivot directly north to try and um, pin down all the Ukrainian forces still on the line of contact or, and this would take them longer and take more supplies. I think there's a real risk that the Russians restart the ground push towards Mykolaiv and Odessa um, and to completely cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea. I think that's most likely where those forces would go. And that's sort of going to become, I would hazard a guess, the main sort of Russian axis of advance in the war, considering they have stalled out around Kiev. And as you rightly note, there's no easy way for them to pull those guys from eastern Ukraine all the way around into Belarus.
3: I wonder whether you know, like getting for, even from Mariupol to Kherson uh, and and to approach this is, is, you know, it's difficult terrain. There's a lot of rivers. There's you know, the the road network and so. I mean, they, they do can stop off for gas in Crimea, I suppose, or you know, get some additional help there. But I can imagine that even that would be a, a challenge, even for a much better a much better military
2: so for sure for sure and i'm definitely still talking in relative terms of you know it's not they're not going to suddenly click into gear and be a very effective right. force but there are a lot of, of russian troops that you know as, as great as ukrainians have been doing there have been some sporadic russian advances and i think if they're able to take Mariupol and recommit those forces they may be able to resume uh you know maybe not full division level operations but certainly probably more at the brigade and regiment level
1: So before we wrap up, I just want to make one point because you, Mason, um, are so professional and you make it all sound easy peasy and nice. But um, for our audience, please ponder and think about the catastrophic implications it would have if Ukraine would be cut off from the Black Sea. I'm a Black Sea girl, so I think Black Sea should belong to the Black Sea people. (laughs) Um, But but on that note, over to you, Donovor.
0: Thank you, Julia. And thank you, Mesa. This has been hugely, hugely informative. Really, really thankful to you. Um, From Dalburu and Julia
1: and and
0: And Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Mason Clark. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us.